Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we're going to be tackling a really tough subject, addiction. But we have one of the leading thought figures on this topic. Dr. Gabor Mate is a, uh, a friend and colleague I've known for a long time. I think he's one of the great experts on addiction. It's understanding it, it's treatment, and I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with him. Well, let's welcome him. Dr. Gabor Mate worked as a family physician for two decades and then served as medical coordinator of the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital. He spent 12 years working in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by hardcore addiction, mental illness, and HIV. Gabor is internationally known for his work on mind-body unity in health and illness, on attention deficit disorder and other childhood developmental issues, and on his breakthrough analysis of addiction as a psychophysiological response to childhood trauma and emotional loss. He's the author of four best-selling books, including When the Body Says No and In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. He has a new book coming out next fall, The Myth of Normal. Welcome, Gabor. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, I'd love to start with the basics. You have a definition of addiction that you like people to really be clear about, and I'd love for you to start there. Sure. I don't think it's a very controversial definition, but it's um, it's an inclusive one. So I define addiction as a complex psychophysiological process that manifests in any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief or pleasure and therefore craves but suffers negative consequences in the long term and has difficulty giving up despite those negative consequences. So craving pleasure, relief in the short term, harm in the long term, inability to give it up. That's what an addiction is, any addiction. And as I point out, that can include drugs, but it goes way beyond drugs. It includes obvious addictions that have been acknowledged as such, such as pornography, sexual acting out, gambling, shopping, eating, internet gaming, work, of course, as many physicians will tell you, and, and, and so on. So that's what an addiction is. And to define addictions by their target rather than by the process, I think is a mistake. It seems to me that if addiction is not universal, it certainly is widespread. And the only reason I think more people don't see that is that many addictions are socially acceptable and uh, we don't see them for what they are. Well, exactly. There's an American writer who talked about two young fish swimming and, and an older fish comes along and he says, What's the, how's the water, boys? And the two young fish say, what the heck is water? You know, like <laughs> when, it, when it surrounds us, it's David Foster Wallace who said that. And when it surrounds us, just as you say, and we, we take it for granted, we no longer recognize it. That's what we, so we concentrate and focus on the hardcore drug addicts as the ones who are addicted. And we ignore the fact that, as a book title says, not my book, but somebody wrote a book called When Society is Addicted. And that's just how it is. How does it change our perception 
by recognizing that most of us have one addiction or another. I mean, obviously it can give us greater compassion towards people with hardcore addiction, perhaps, although I think we often separate ourselves. You know, if we have an addiction to coffee or if we are a workaholic or something else that perhaps is more socially acceptable, we don't necessarily see ourselves in the large world of addiction. Well, I think, uh, Victoria, that shift in compassion alone is not a trivial thing because right now uh, addicts or identified addicts are treated in society in general is pretty brutal. And even in the medical profession, even with their somewhat more advanced view, with which I don't agree, that addiction is some kind of a brain disease, but even given that, which which is certainly more compassionate and more forward-looking, even then, a lot of physicians, hospital, emergency departments, healthcare professionals in general, treat addicts with a fair bit of contempt and rejection. So that shift in compassion alone, if we saw that we're all in the same boat, would be a huge step forward in terms of treatment. But also, you know, that recognition would also, I think, impel us to start looking a bit more deeply as to the causes of addiction. Like once we recognize that addictions can be expressed in all kinds of processes, so-called process addictions, there goes the genetic drug brain disease model of addiction. And we realize all of a sudden that's just not an adequate model. You know, that model reflects some aspects of reality, but it's not broad enough and not deep enough to account for all the addictions out there. So then what does? So that question immediately arises. In your model, and also in some of the ways in which we train our fellows, motivational interviewing is a way of talking to people to help understand what may be motivating. One of the first questions you ask is, um, what do you like about, (laughs) fill in the blank, you know, what do you like about smoking? And people sometimes say fascinating things. I remember a patient who said, it makes me feel like a rebel, or what do you like about drinking? And I remember a patient who said, and she had a really tough life. She said, it helps me forget. So you talk a lot about how the addiction serves, what it does in our life that's actually really useful. Can you, can you speak to that? Sure. Well, so that is my very first question. I don't call what I do motivation into you. I'm not trying to motivate anybody. I'm just trying to get to know them. You know, They're, If they weren't motivated, they wouldn't be in my office. I do begin with not what's wrong with the addiction, which we all know, but what's right about it what does it do for you and just like the answers that you elicited people say gives me a sense of inner peace a sense of control reduces my anxiety level it lowers stress levels it makes me feel more warm-hearted and connected to other people it soothes the pain it numbs me Uh, it distracts me well when do people need to be numbed and distracted in fact all these states lack of joy lack of connection overwhelming. So these are states of emotional pain. And so really the answer we always get, if we ask it, is we get pain relief, emotional pain relief. And hence my mantra, it's not why the addiction, but why the pain? And and so that, that first question. And also, of course, when people give the answers such as you've got and I've got, I, I right away will say, you know what, I get it. Those I want those things too. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want peace of mind? Who doesn't want uh, stress relief? Who doesn't want uh, numbing of pain? I mean, you know, you go to a dentist, that's what they do, you know? So 
The question is, what gave you pain in your life? Why do you have so much stress that you have to distract yourself? What happened to you? So one question leads to another. So it seems to me that the, in, in my reading and thinking, that Buddhist philosophy comes closest to, to providing an answer to that, since it states that the essence of human experience is, is suffering, which maybe is better translated as incompleteness or unfulfillment. And there's a sense that in order to feel content or fulfilled, we need something outside of ourselves. Uh, whether it's a cigarette or a drink or a reward from a slot machine. So to me, that has been the most useful answer that I've come up with as to the root of addictive behavior. Well, it's interesting you should mention Buddhist philosophy because the Buddhists talk about attachment, don't they? Uh, there's the attachment to these externals that creates the suffering. Not, not the mere existence of these externals, but our fervid attachment to them. Now, I agree with that, and that's what an addiction is. So the Buddha talked about being addicted to circuses and bells and, you know, dancing. And, you know, he, he listed a whole lot of things. But the word attachment, I think, is key here because there's another meaning for the word attachment, which is modern psychological sense. So attachment means the caring, nurturing relationship between infant and parent. My contention is, is that when that attachment need is not met, that's when we develop these attachments in a negative sense. So the lack, the lack of meeting of our attachment needs creates our, our need to fulfill ourselves or fill ourselves from the outside. Indeed, the title of the book, In the Realm of Hungry Rose, is a Buddhist image. In, 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 in the uh, Buddhist cosmology, Tibetan Buddhist cosmology, the realm of hungry ghosts is one of beings with large empty bellies and tiny mouths and small scrawny gullets so that it can never satiate themselves. Gabor, talk more about that early unmet need for attachment. And we now speak a lot about ACEs, adverse childhood events, um, and that it doesn't have to necessarily be some horrific thing. It, it could just be the parent and child aren't matched somehow. The child's needs are not being met by the parent. Well, you know, there was an article published in, in the journal Pediatrics. This is in 2012. And um, the article came from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child. And it basically summed up how the human brain develops. I'd like to cite that article in response to this question. So they, they talk about brain development in this article, and, and they summarize decades of brain research. So by the time this article was published in the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, this wasn't new information, but it did sum up the previous decades of brain research. And um, I'll just read you the one sentence from it. The interactions of genes and experiences literally shapes the circuitry of the developing brain and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in, in the early childhood years. In other words, the very development of our brain depends on our early attachment relationships. And that actually affects us not only psychologically or emotionally, but it actually affects are receptors for endorphins and dopamine, all of which are implicated in addictions. 
So when there's early attachment relationships are troubled, that has both a psychological and a physiological impact on our development. And so that unsatisfactory relationships, not because the parents don't love their kids or they don't do their best, but because let's say they're stressed, traumatized, economically troubled, politically under threat, for any set of reasons, uh, the, the the parents are not able to meet those attunement needs of the child. That's going to have a negative impact on the child. So, yes, you can hurt kids by the ACE criteria, you know, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, a parent dying, a parent being jailed, violence in the family, a parent being addicted, and so on and so forth. But you can also hurt kids just by not meeting their emotional needs, not because you're not trying to, but because you might not be capable. But let's say you're depressed. With depressed parents, we know our difficulty of tuning with their kids. So postpartum depression becomes the risk factor for mental health problems in the child later on, not because the mother didn't love the child. Uh, Gabor, what about treatment of addictions? That can be very frustrating. And uh, my experience has been that you can shift addictive behavior toward uh, things that are better for you rather than worse for you. But it's very hard to get to the root of addictive behavior and change that. What's your experience? Well, look, I worked with people in Vancouver's downtown east side, which incidentally, is, you, you've, you've probably seen it because you're in the BC, and it's a shocking place to anybody to see for the first time people injecting, inhaling, ingesting drugs of all kinds out in the street. And it's a horrific scene. And these people would lose everything their health, their teeth, their relationships, and they would not give up their addictions. But I would maintain that's partly because neither the social system or the treatment system fully understands addiction. If you took your car to a mechanic that didn't understand the machinery of the car, it'd be very frustrating to watch him work on your car and and not getting it going. And I maintain that our profession does not understand addiction deeply enough. And, and, And furthermore, our profession works in a social context that is inimical to providing good care to people who are addicted. So the part of the frustration is not just in the nature of addiction itself, but in how we approach the problem. Now you have put out into the world some of the things you do think are helpful, from appreciative inquiry to internal family systems, uh, EMDR, emotional freedom therapy, and more recently, psychedelics in some situations. Uh, I'm wondering if you would like to speak to any of those in any particular order. (laughs) Well, the first one, um, I can't claim any studies because there haven't been any, and I'm not interested in studies anyway. I mean, I I, I know I'm not putting down studies, but I think something works, I just do it. You know, I'm not going to wait till 20 years later, somebody proves it and publishes it in, in, in a paper. So I developed a method called compassionate inquiry, which just means asking the right questions to help people find the truth within themselves. A more researched modality is Dick Schwartz's internal family systems model. Now, in, in both our models, whether Dick's or mine, the addiction is not the primary problem. The addiction is an attempt to solve the problem of emotional pain and suffering. Dick Schwartz calls addictions like firefighters. They're they, they come along to put out the flame of emotional pain when it's overbearing. And a firefighter of course, is a bit ruthless. He doesn't care if he destroys the house. He just he just wants to put out the flame. He wants to save the house, but he'll destroy the house if he has to to, to 
thing from spreading. So addictions, in a sense, are firefighters in his view. Uh, and once you get their proper role, then you no longer approach them as an enemy, but as something that's trying to do something for you, which is also my approach as well. You know, then because I believe that addictions, well, it's not a religious belief, it's, I'm convinced based on my own clinical experience, my own lived experience within my own body, and also by all manner of scientific research, that addictions are rooted in trauma. Therefore, I think that any good trauma therapy would add to the addiction treatment armamentarium. Nothing by itself is sufficient, I don't think, but certainly we have to bring in good trauma care and all these other methods you mentioned, EMDR and some others, are, are can be helpful as trauma-resolving approaches. The psychedelics are, and you know, I'm talking with one of the pioneers of psychedelics in North America, going way back, but the psychedelics are, are, are really promising, and in my view, and in my experience, more than promising modality to help people deal with addictions. And they're being seriously studied again after decades of neglect. Now they're serious subject of study again with more than encouraging results, I would say. And I've personally seen people transform from heroin addiction, to nicotine addiction, alcoholism, sex addiction, through the through the use of through the judicious use of psychedelics in the proper setting. So, Gabor, um, I have a uh, a question. Uh, one of the psychedelics which I have no personal firsthand experience with is iboga, uh, the African plant, and that has a particular reputation for helping with addictive behavior. Can you tell me anything about that? Well, what's all the psychedelics help to deal with traumatic imprint, but iboga which I have had the experience of, and it's not for the faint-hearted, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, also, it has to be done in a good medically vetted context, but it does have a unique capacity, which is that it obviates, eliminates opiate withdrawal. So, 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 so you could be on heroin for 20 years, and within four days, you have no withdrawal symptoms if, if, with the proper use of Iboga, which is astonishing, but true. And it's been researched, so you think that this is a modality which in the U.S. is illegal. We should be all excited about it because, as you and I both know, there's nothing in the Western pharmacopoeia that even remotely can do that. So which means that somebody could be on heroin, and if we put them in the proper Iboga-providing setting, they wouldn't have to go on Suboxone or Methadone. That's astonishing. Now, does that work 100% of the time? No. Maybe only forty or fifty percent of the time. Show me anything that's even close. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards, the center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim dot org slash podcast that's azcim.org slash podcast so given what you said as the root of addiction which is an attempt to solve um, a trauma an emotional problem how do you think that the psychedelics and i realize it may be different for different ones are solving that problem so that the need for the drug goes away or or the 
whatever, the, <laughs> the sex addiction, whatever. What is happening? Well, um, if you take something like sex addiction, uh, what is a person after? They're not after sex. Because if that's all there was to it, you would just find another sex addict to partner up with, and you could have all the sex you wanted for the rest of your life. I don't mean to be facetious. It's a serious condition. But the solution is not about sex. It's about being wanted and the dopamine hit of triumph and the pursuit. You know, the great neuroscientist Jack Pankstep talked about there's different brain circuits that we share with other mammals. And there's one called the seeking system. And the seeking system, and he capitalized these, seeking. And the seeking system runs on dopamine. So what the behavior addict, like the gambler, is not after the money, is she? Because if she did, when she won the money, she'd never go back to the casino, but she's back the next morning. So it's not about the money. And sex addiction is not about the sex. It's about the shopping addict. It's not about what you know this personally. Not about what you're buying. It's about the the thrill and the hunt and the chase. The seeking system is just enlivened by the dopamine hit. So take sex addiction now in a psychedelic. If you realized why your vitality has been subdued by some traumatic imprint, and if you can reconnect to your true self where your vital being has never been destroyed, well, guess what? You don't have to go seeking anymore. It's all within you. And that's simplistic and perhaps idealized, but that's what happens in the proper psychedelic setting is that people's defenses kind of get out of the way and they get to experience both the deep pain that they've been running from and maybe also the deep joy that they suppressed long ago. And when you do, it, you no longer have to keep looking to the outside. That, 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 that external search that Andy was talking about now can... Is, is no longer necessary. Now, it's not that simple, but that's the essence of it. Mm-hmm. Andy, do you want to say more about that from, as you, as Gabor pointed out, your deep experience around psychedelics? My experience is that they can show you possibilities that otherwise you wouldn't have believed in. So even if that experience doesn't last, even if it's temporary, it gives you a glimpse of a way of being that may motivate you to work toward attain that more of the time. And I don't know anything else that really has that potential if the situation is structured properly. I I totally agree. I, I would only say that for some people, they can achieve such states through deep spiritual work without psychedelics. And in those cases, it's probably, although not necessarily, even then it's not even then it's not necessarily lasting. These are glimpses or portals into the doors of perception, as somebody said. But then you have to integrate them into your life. And whether it's a spiritual experience, whether it's a psychedelic experience, that integration over time is the real challenge. One thing I guess I'm hearing is that in the psychedelic experience is the potential to know yourself as loved, uh, as complete. I want to say perfect, complete. complete. Thank you. Yes. So that the seeking is unnecessary. Not only as loved, but also as love itself. I mean, so so many people have told me that, you know, uh, no, I have to say, you know, sinner that I am, I've never had that, that depth of experience. I've led retreats and facilitated other people's experience, 
I'm nothing but love. You know, and I'm sitting there, why can't I feel that? You know, but uh, but yeah, people not 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 that I'm loved, but also that I'm loved. And it's and you know what? It's not hokey. It's not hokey. Yeah, I look forward to a time when um, this becomes legal and available. Um, you know, ketamine is now legal in the U.S. and Canada, but I hope that soon we'll have a much wider range of options. I want to ask a question about prevention. For many people, the COVID pandemic is certainly creating all sorts of trauma, including uh, in the U.S. alone, there are 140,000 children who've lost a parent or caregiver. What can we do to prevent them from growing up you know, with a great need for addictive behaviors to solve the pain? Well, here's where the title of my next book comes in. You know, um... Subtitle, the myth of normal and the subtitle, trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. So I think in a toxic culture, this is what happens. Now, one of the toxicities of our culture is the isolation of parenting and, and families. Now, how we evolved as human beings was in small band hunter-gatherer groups. And literally, hominids and hominins, even before the advent of our own species, lived in these small band groupings where parenting wasn't an individual or a nuclear family task. It was a communal task. So, and children's attachments were to many nurturing adults. So if the parents did die, it was not a, it was maybe sad, but it wasn't a trauma because the child, the child was still held in an extended family communal context. In our isolated society where parents barely even see their kids most of the time I mean, because they both have to go to work. But should one of them die or, you know, there's just not the backup. There's not the whole thing. So the trauma is not simply what happens external to you. It's what happens inside you. So two children losing a parent, it'll be traumatic to one, painful, but not traumatic to the other, depending on the kind of holding and support they receive. And so in our society, there's a lot of trauma by default because we don't have the social holding of one another that our human nature actually expects and uh, demands. We have a lot of work to do as a society, don't we? Yeah, we do. We're definitely geared to go the other way. You know, we're like, we're organized to go the other way. We're organized towards more isolation, more aggressiveness, more competition, more individual endeavor rather than um, the more human. And when I say more human, I mean, hunter-gatherers is how we lived until about, all of us, until about 11,000, 15,000 years ago. Now, if human, if just take our own species, which is, not the first human species, but just take our own species. We've been around, say, 150,000 years ago. That means that if if our species has been around for 60 minutes, then for the last six minutes, we've been living not as hunter-gatherers. It's totally unnatural. When I say unnatural, I don't mean that it's bad or it shouldn't have happened. I mean, evolution and, and, and transformation happens. But it means we haven't adjusted to that, to what we've lost. So when you talk about prevention, in my book on addiction, I have an appendix on prevention. And, and what I say is that prevention needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. Because why do I say that? 
Because in that same Harvard article that I quoted for you, the previous sentence says, the architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, and establishes either a sturdy or a fragile foundation for all the health, learning, and behavior that follow. All the health, learning, and behavior. That means the brain is constructed already in utero, and that means that we know that the stresses on the mom actually are going to physiologically affect the baby's development. Stress hormones have a negative impact on brain development. You notice in human studies and animal studies, you can expose pregnant animals to loud noises one hour a week in the second trimester. Their offspring will be more likely to soothe themselves with alcohol and cocaine as adults. So the, the prevention of addiction really needs to begin. If you have to start somewhere, it needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. And, you know, let's face it, as physicians, are we trained to ask those questions? When a pre pregnant woman comes to me, am I trained? I'll do the ultrasound and the blood test and, you know, uh, measuring the weight and, uh, you know, the usual screens and all that. But will I ask about her? How are you feeling? How's your marriage? What kind of stresses are you under on the job? What support do you have in your life? Are, there, are you carrying any unresolved pain from your childhood that you think might affect how you relate to this child? You know, um, nobody asks those questions because we're not trained to. And yet that's where you need to begin the prevention. Yeah, you're actually uh, speaking with someone who wrote a book called Be Fruitful, The Essential Guide to Maximizing Fertility and Giving Birth to a Healthy Child. And in the book, I speak to the need to prepare before conception, because from the moment of conception, that neurological system of the baby is already developing. And so you want to be as healthy as possible and have your stress management and have your uh, your tribe who's going to help support you, you know, before. Uh, but I agree. I don't think that that's commonly talked about. So I'm going to ask another really challenging question, which is um, what can you advise the loved ones of a person who's really struggling, let's say with a hardcore addiction that's perhaps destroying their life? Well, let me ask you guys first, uh, from an integrative medicine point of view that, that, that you both pioneer and teach, what would you say to people? I find that um, it, it's incredibly hard. And, and you know what I usually hold is to provide as much compassion as you can, not believe you can change the person because change comes from within that person and do what you can not to enable the person to make it easier for them to continue in the behavior and that's that's a uh you know a lot to ask i won't dispute that um do you guys know louis malmadrona yes he's taught at our center over the years wonderful so as you know he's a part lakota uh, physician and psychiatrist and i was talking to louis not long ago and he says in the lakota tradition when somebody gets sick um the community kind of says well thank you you're manifesting some dysfunction and you're manifesting some dysfunction in the whole community. Therefore, your healing is our healing. And that kind of integrative approach, that's why I asked about what you would say. Because that kind of integrative approach that's pretty much taken for granted in indigenous cultures is exactly what I would say to people. I would say that, okay, look, I know you're suffering because your loved one is addicted and they're manipulating, they might be lying to you. 
um, they're certainly hurting themselves and that hurts you. I get your pain, but their addiction didn't arise out of de novo, out of nothing. Their, their addiction reflects dynamics in the whole community and the whole extended family. Usually it reflects multi-generational trauma. They may be the sensitive one who downloaded that trauma. They may be the canary in the mine, but they're reflecting traumas that didn't originate with them and that you're all a part of, not as culpable beings, but as parts of that family system. And therefore, I would suggest that you guys all recognize that and you undertake healing and invite your addicted relative or friend to join the healing process with you, not as a demand or as one of these harsh interventions, but as, look, your problem, your pain that you're soothing with your particular way is all of our pain and we all need to heal. So can we all join together? And we're going to undertake that whether you're ready right now to join us or not, but you're always welcome in. So that's how I would approach that. Yeah, that is one of the principles of integrative medicine is that uh, people are more than physical bodies. They are mental, emotional beings, spiritual entities, and community members. And all of those things have to be taken into account to understand health and illness. Right. And again, indigenous traditions tend to understand that intuitively. Like when you get the medicine wheel, which involves the psychological, the spiritual, the physical, and the social, they don't ignore any of those things. And I'm sure your frustration, both of you and mine, with our profession is precisely that splitting, splitting of what cannot be split in real life. And we've been doing your work for a long time, and it's got a fair bit of acceptance, and there's a lot of people studying it. But it's still an outlier when it comes to the practice of medicine. How do you deal with, how do you guys deal with that? that? That you're saying something that's so clear and so obvious and self-evident and scientifically verifiable, and yet it's still not penetrating the mainstream. But time is on our side because the conventional healthcare system is failing. It's in shambles. Uh, and the wor worse it gets, the more institutions open to the philosophy that we've been teaching. So uh, even though so many things are stacked against us, especially the priorities of reimbursement at the moment, I really feel that that all is going to change. It has to. I want to answer the way you just answered about addiction, and that's that one of my mentors, Rachel Naomi Remen, said, if you want to change a culture, develop a subculture and model a different way. And at this point, we have close to 2,000 doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants who have gone through our fellowship training. And so we have a community who really share beliefs um, and we have shorter programs for allied health professionals. And so um, at our center, you know, we have 50 people, which is big enough to feel that sense of community and tribe, uh, which means we're not actually that often confronted with uh, the absolute skepticism that still exists in pockets. Uh, we are uh, bolstered by the support of our community. Yeah, well, it's great to hear and it's certainly inspiring to see. It, it is true that the zeitgeist is shifting. Uh, let, let's say, take the issue of trauma, which I'm particularly engaged in. It would have been inconceivable 10 years ago that a book on trauma would be a New York Times bestseller for years. But, there, uh, but there's Bessel van der Kolk's book and Bruce Perry's new book with Oprah about what happened to you. So that, you know, the, 
that doesn't mean that the profession is changing, but it certainly means that the profession is increasingly in an environment that's going to demand change. And uh, I often think that change sometimes comes from the outside, you know, when there's enough of a groundswell that demands it. Um, it, it it's more likely to happen. This has been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much, Gabor, because um, when you say the zeitgeist is changing, you are one of the people who have helped change it. I think that you have um, been such a pioneer in changing our understanding of the mind-body connection, of uh, ADHD, of uh, why uh, addiction happens, of the influence of trauma. So I just want to honor all that you have contributed to help human beings be healthier and happier. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say and certainly very happy for me to hear. So thanks so much. All right. Take care, you guys. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Body of Wonder brought to you by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. If you like the show, please rate us five stars, follow the show, and leave a review. To learn more about integrative healing and the center, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast.